For those of you who haven't been with us for a while, let me just explain what we're doing. There's 150 psalms. Each summer we're taking about 15 of them. Hopefully we'll be done in a 10-year span. And we've already gotten up through Psalm 54. We will go probably to Psalm 72 this summer. That puts us nearly halfway through the psalms. There are 150 psalms, and these psalms are divided into five sections, or what are called five books. Okay? Section 1 is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. That's section 1. Okay. Section 2 is Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. So that means we are in the middle of the second book of Psalms. The difference between the first book of Psalms and the second book of Psalms is this. In Psalms 1 through 41, God is addressed as Yahweh or Jehovah. And that translates into your English Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, from the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. In book number 2, Psalms 42 through 72, God is referred to in every case as Elohim. It's a different word. Which has led to all kinds of theories. <laughs> and we're not sure why that is, but uh, just you need to realize that. Then the third book is Psalm 73 through 89. The fourth book, 90 to 106. And then the fifth book of Psalms, or the fifth section of Psalms, 107 to 150. Each one of the sections ends with a doxology, or a praise, or an amen. And that's how it comes to its conclusion. We also know that Psalm 1 serves as the introductory psalm to the rest of the psalms. And so therefore what you'll see is throughout all the psalms, all 150, uh, there will be allusions back to uh, the first psalm. Sometimes words in the first psalm will repeat in these later psalms, and you're going to see a case of that today. Also, you'll discover above many of the psalms there is a, a superscription. And you'll notice there's a superscription above Psalm 55. Now, you may have a title above 55. That's been put in by your publisher. Okay? But there's a superscription there. And the superscription, which was added probably around the 3rd century B.C., uh, describes some of the content in the psalm and also often gives you some sort of historical context gives you insight into how the psalm is to be interpreted. And in our case, you see there is a superscription. David's name appears in 73 of the superscriptions. Now look at our superscription. To the chief magician, a musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. So we would say that this is one of the psalms that, likely, that is attributed to David. Now remember that superscription is not inspired, but it, that's what the uh, Israel in the third century and the early church believed who, inspired, who wrote this particular psalm, King David. And probably in this case, that is the situation. Now notice it says, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, or maybe yours simply has a Hebrew word there, neganoth. And it, that simply means on stringed instruments, or with, accompanied by stringed instruments, which means the song is a song, and in this case it's a song that's going to be accompanied 
with stringed instruments. And then also the superscription says, a contemplation, or you may have the Hebrew word maskil, uh, which simply means to murmur or hum. And it's probably a reference to the choir, because these psalms would have been accompanied by not only stringed instruments, but a choir. And it speaks of an interlude where the audience who hears the psalm uh, is to reflect on its meaning of what's just been said. And during that period of time, instead of singing out loud the psalm, the choir would just start, you know, and then you would think. You ever see some of these game shows? When it comes time, do you give anything an answer? Suddenly the orchestra goes, and then they say, and that gives you time to think. Well, that's what they did in the psalms. The choirs hummed, or they murmured. And they're supposed to give you time for introspection. Introspection. So these are congregational psalms. Okay, so you still with me? Okay. So let me give you the outline of Psalm 55. Here's how we're going to divide it. Okay? Verses 1 through 3, we're going to call this David's entreaty. This is where he calls upon God. It's a desperate entreaty. Okay, That's part 1. Verses 4 through 8, David's condition. Okay, And you're going to see it's a dreadful condition. And then verses 9 through 15, David's request. And you're going to see it's a dramatic request. Okay, That's 9 through 15. And then the final section is verses 16 through 23, and this is David's resolve. And you're going to see it is a, a dramatic resolve. He is determined to do something. Okay? So let's look at section number one, David's entreaty. Look at verse one. Give ear to my prayer, O God, which would be Elohim, general name for God, powerful God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Now, Psalms normally... Uh, are a form of poetry. Not all psalms are poetry, but this psalm is poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, often the first line means the same thing as the second line. And you're going to see this throughout the psalm. I'm not going to point it out every time. Okay? But oftentimes, line number one means the same thing as line number two. So here you have line number one. Give ear to my prayer, O God. That's the positive side of his request. Saying it in a negative way, he simply says, do not hide yourself from my supplication. Don't what? Don't hide yourself. This uh, carries the idea of uh, listen to me and don't abandon me. Don't forsake me when I speak to you. Hey, listen up. Pay attention. Uh, we see Jesus saying the same thing when he's on the cross. You know, where he says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? You've, I've cried after you. You're not listening to me. Don't abandon me. And that's what David is saying here. This is a desperate type of entreaty. He says it in a positive way. He says it in a negative way. Now remember, when these events are happening, we're going to find out what's happening in this psalm. What causes him to make this cry to God? Uh, he's not writing the psalm down as the events are happening. You know, you would write down the psalm after the events happen. You'd be telling the story. So we don't know exactly when he writes the psalm. It could be he writes it at 
10 days after these events happen or a year after. We're not sure when. But uh, just remember that he's writing this down and he's telling what happened to him in the midst of these <coughs> events. Okay, now look what he says in verse 2. Same thing. Attend to me. Look at this. <coughs> Hear me. Same thing. And then he tells us uh, why. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily. This is his state of mind. He says he's restless. He's agitated. He uh, is fidgety. His nerves are on edge. He tosses and turns at night. That sound familiar? His mind is racing. That's what he says there. Look, I'm restless in my complaint. Moan noisily. I'm, I'm, I'm always going... <sighs> Sound familiar? It does in my household. <laughs> Especially when I'm facing a deadline. Or when all the grandkids leave. I go, ah. <sighs> it takes me two or three days to get down. Notice he uses the word complaint. I'm restless in my complaint. Uh, he's not a happy trooper. He's complaining about something. Uh, he's not complaining about God. He's complaining to God about a certain situation. So what's the reason for this agitation in his life? Look at verse 3. Because, here's why he's agitated. Here's his complaint. Because of the voice of the enemy. He is facing vocal opposition. Number 2. Look at verse 3. Because of the opposition of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. Not only does he face vocal opposition, he faces violent opposition. They are bringing down wrath upon him. Uh, what he's describing is an enemy, whom he describes as wicked, who are leading a revolution. It's like revolution is in the air. Uh, there's anarchy happening within the city of Jerusalem, within the kingdom of David. And so he is just doesn't know what to do. He's beside himself. He's fidgety. He can't sleep at night. His nerves are on edge. And so he cries out to God. And he says, help God. Help me. Give ear to my prayer, my supplication. Don't hide yourself from me. I need you right now. Listen. So you can sort of get the sense of his desperation. Okay? So he entreats God. Now we go to the second section, verse 4 which describes his dreadful condition. Look what he says. My heart is severely pained within me. And the terrors, this would be the second line, the terrors of death have fallen on me. Notice, number one, in me. Number two, on me. He's facing inward agony and he is being overtaken by fear. Notice, what is the fear of? Fear of death. It just comes upon him when he, when he least expects it. Notice that uh, we would call something like this a panic attack. See, he's has, he faces agony within, he says. My heart is severely pained. Look, he's hurt inside about what's going on. And then suddenly, something just falls upon him, and it's the terrors of death. He has a panic attack. It's pretty bad when it just comes upon you when you least expect it. And if you've ever had a panic attack, you know what that's like. 
it's not a fun situation when your heart starts beating real fast and you don't know whether you're going to be able, whether you're living or dying or having a heart attack. He says, fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. He's just expanding upon this. He's shaking in his boots. See, when he least expects it, it just comes upon him. It's like he's living a nightmare. Look at the next phrase. The horror has overwhelmed me. The horror, the terror. It's uh, like he's living a nightmare, but he's not asleep. He's awake, and the nightmare is happening. He's wondering, when is this nightmare ever going to end? And he can't get it out of his mind. His mind is racing, and this is his situation. So in verse 6, he says, So I said, and he says, like, maybe to himself, maybe to his close friends. Look what he said. I like this. This sounds like Allen Street. So I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. He wants to run. He wants to escape. <laughs> That's his inclination. See? He wants to bury his head in the sand. He doesn't want to face the situation. He's under so much pressure. He said, I just wish I could <laughs> go on a vacation. What do you do when the pressure's on you? Here's what David, here's his inclination. He just wants to escape and get off to the hill and get away so he can just get some rest. Notice how this is all mental things that are happening to him, but it's having this tremendous, put this tremendous pressure on his psyche, and he just wants to run for his life. What do you do when the pressure's on you? You go to the bottle? A lot of people say, oh, I need a, I just need a drink. <laughs> I need a drink, right? Yeah. Do you go shopping? That's what some of you do. Man, I just have to get out of here. I just have. Oh, I can't stand this. I can't. I just want to go shopping. You want to spend money? It makes you feel better when you spend money. You know, instead of exhausting you, you get uplifted by that. Uh, some people just turn on the boob tube and they just watch television. They escape in this world of fantasy. See, because they don't want to face the reality. They have to, or they get out of town. They want to go on a vacation. I need a vacation. Remember that old commercial? I need mean, that was a Southwest commercial, Southwest Airlines, I think. But just wants to run. Doesn't matter how brave you are. Look, David's a brave warrior. You're talking about Memorial Day? This is a man that stood up and led his armies in battle. But look what he wants to do now. When the revelation, when the revolution's afoot. He wants to run. He wants to escape. Elijah stood up to four hundred prophets of Baal, but the next day he runs at the face of Jezebel. This escapes for his life. Well, maybe her face would have scared you, you as well. I don't know. But he wants to run. We all want to do that. Jesus says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. You think he wants to die? He wants to escape. See, we all can relate to this. This is David in his weak, weakest moment. Just wants to flee his life because he's afraid that if he stays in this situation he's going to die and he's going to be deposed and he just needs to get out of town so then in verse 7 he says indeed I would wander off if I had my brothers here's what I would do I would wander off and I would just remain in the wilderness I would just get off and withdraw and just be by myself I wouldn't want anybody around Get out there in the desert somewhere. 
when it'll be like a hermit, get away from all the pressures of life. But that's the worst thing you can do. And David realizes that. But he says, if I had my brothers, that's what I did. I would rather, verse 7, wander far off and remain. Look at that, remain. Now come back. Just start all over in the desert. And then you see the word Selah, which is an interlude. And here the choir starts going, <laughs> and it gives you time to think about it, what you would do if you were in David's shoes, and what caused him to get to the point where he just wanted to run off and escape. See, so this is sort of a, a, a note for the audience and the choir to contemplate what David just said. I just want to be left alone. And then he sort of gives an afterthought after you've thought about it, then David comes back. Remember, this is a song that he's composed, and this is how he composes the song. After there's that interlude, he comes back in verse 8 and said, In fact, I hastened my escape. I'd leave the night. I wouldn't even pack my bags. From the windy storm and the tempest. Of course, he's not facing a tornado. He's facing an enemy who wants to overthrow him, which he describes as a windy storm. Can you stop a windy storm? No. Can you stop a tempest? No. There's only one person that could do that. So, but that's what this revolution is. It's like it can't be stopped, and so he just wants to get away. So that leads us to the third section, beginning in verse 9, David's drastic requests. Look at verse 9. So here's what he decides. He's not going to run. So guess what he decides to do? Look what he says in verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. So he turns to God and he says, and it's a drastic request. He says, for God to handle the problem, but he gives God instructions how to handle the problem. Here's what I want you to do. First of all, I want you to destroy them. And... Uh, their project, probably not just them, but their project, and to divide their tongues. What does that sound like? Tongues divided. Yeah, it sounds like Babel, doesn't it? Remember here where people rebelled against God, they were going to build this tower, and God said, hey, they're in rebellion against us, guess what we're going to do? We're going to stop this project real quick. <laughs> so the Tower of Babel basically is destroyed, the project comes to an end, and God divides their tongue and they can't communicate with each other. So David calls for the same kind of solution, but he doesn't mean give them a different language like in the Tower of Babel. What he really wants them to do is be divided in what they say. In other words, where one has one opinion, another has another opinion, and they can't come to a, his enemies can't come to a conclusion, and they start fighting amongst themselves, and when the kingdom is divided, can't stand. So he's asking God to divide and to destroy, that they might fight against themselves. And when we see who the characters are in this psalm, you'll understand why that is. So then in, at the end of verse 9, he says, for I have seen, here's why you need to do that, because I have seen violence and strength in the city. That would be the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. Day and night, they, that's the enemy, Go around on its walls. Notice the word walls. Iniquity and trouble are in the midst of it. That is in the midst of the city. Destruction is in the midst. 
in its midst, in the midst of the city. Oppression and deceit, duplicity, do not depart from its streets. So he's telling God why he needs to destroy and divide these people because this is what's happening. And he says, hey, when you look out on the walls, the edge of the city, there the enemy is there and they're just talking and plotting and planning how they're going to overthrow the city and overthrow me as king. And when you look in the streets, in the middle of the streets, there they are again plotting and planning. And they're using duplicity. They are using deceit. They are going around, sneaking around. They're whispering. They have a whisper and a murmur campaign against me. They're turning the people against me. People who said they would be loyal to me are being turned against me. And David sees all this. And it's like a tempest. It's like a storm that he cannot stop. And so he asks God to just destroy the whole plan and divide them. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now he gives his explanation. Look what he says in verse 12. For it is not an enemy. Watch this. Here's why he asked God to do it. It's not an enemy, for, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. If it were a foreign king who were invading Jerusalem, let's say a Philistine king, who were invading Jerusalem, he said, I could bear it. I could stand up and I would face the guy and I would take my armies out and we would fight a battle. I could handle that. I've done that in the past. So he's giving his explanation why he's asking God to take care of this situation. Then look what he says in the middle of verse 12. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. It's not just, it's not just somebody who's a challenger for power. We all have challengers. People want your job, you know. He said, it was just somebody who was challenging my position. I could handle that. I could handle that. See? He says, then I could, then I could hide from him. could even do that. Look at this. Have it with somebody you're really strong. An assassin who's coming after you. I could, I could hide. He wouldn't get me. I could handle that. But look what he says. But it was you. And he speaks right to the enemy, the person who is causing all the problem. It was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. The person who is causing the revolution, the anarchist, is his friend. He says, my equal. People I have, somebody I hang around with, we call each other by names. He doesn't have to say king or your honor or your majesty. We just hang out together. He's my equal. And then look what he says about him. My companion. Look at that. My companion. We hang out together. My acquaintance. Well, there are two people that fall into that category that we know from history. If you were with us in the Psalms last year, you'll remember this. There was a revolution that took place in David's kingdom that was started by his son Absalom. Flesh of his flesh, his own son, tried to overthrow his father. And Absalom took David's chief counselor, Ahithophel, and drew him to his side 
And David's best friend and his son joined together together to overthrow the kingdom of David. And that story is in 2 Samuel. And if you go back to one of the Psalms from last year, you will see that. So look what happens in verse 14. He talks about his friend. He says, we took counsel together. We met together privately. We strategized together. You know, I needed the confidential advice. When I wanted to tell a state secret, you know, it was you that I talked to. We took sweet counsel together. We met privately. Look at this. We walked to the house of God in the throng. We led the masses publicly to worship in the house of God. They prayed together. They sat in the pew together. (laughs) They prayed together privately. They took counsel together privately. They sat in the pew together publicly. They led the nation in righteousness. They were best friends. It's the best friend that's turned against him. The friend has turned into a fiend. And he doesn't know what to do. No wonder he wants to go put his head in the sand. What do you do in a situation like that? You too, Brutus? You too? Caesar says. Judas? You betrayed me with a kiss? That's what David's facing. A friend who has turned against him with his son Absalom. So look what David says in verse 15. He says the same thing he says when he starts this section. In verse 9 he says, Let death seize them. Notice plural. Do you see that? At least two of them. It's probably Absalom and Ahithophel, his counselor, and probably their followers. Let death seize, seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, or more literally, into the pit. Why? For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them because of their evil doing. Uh, sort of an allusion to Korah. Remember when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and Korah leads a rebellion of the people against Moses and Moses comes, his trusted advisor, and Moses comes down and he cries out to God and the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all of his followers alive. That's what he asked God to do. Cause the earth to open up and just swallow them all by. Just destroy them. How would you like to pray that? Against your son and against your best friend. That's what David does. He doesn't want to have to single-handedly kill them. He doesn't want to run and allow them to take over his kingdom. So he says, God, let death seize them. Let them go down into the pit because of the, what, their wickedness. Now we see David's resolve. Look at verse 16. This is his resolve. It's a dramatic resolve. That's what he wants God to do. Now, what would he do? Look at verse 16. As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. There, there's a cause and effect there. Notice that. Call, uh, I will call upon the Lord... The effect, the Lord will save me. So while Absalom and Ahithophel seek to persuade the people against David, David seeks to persuade God against them. 
So we see that each one is doing something, but one is trying to influence the crowd, and David's trying to influence God. Look at verse 17. Morning and evening and at noon I will pray. He prays frequently. Notice that. He prays frequently. Morning, noon, and evening I will pray. In fact, it starts off with evening, doesn't it? Why do you think he starts off with evening? Because the Jewish day began at 6 o'clock at night. <laughs> That's why he starts off there. But he prays frequently, he says. And, look how else he'll pray. I will pray aloud. He will pray fervently. Look, he prays frequently. He prays fervently. And he makes a proclamation. And he shall hear my voice. Hey, that's what he said up in verse 1. Hear, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself. Now David has the assurance that God indeed is going to hear him. Notice the basis for his assurance in verse 18. He has redeemed, notice the ED on the end of the word, he has redeemed my soul in peace and from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. Notice he says that in the past, God's always come to the rescue. He's always saved me. If he's done it in the past, guess what? He'll do it again. This is the basis of David's assurance. Whenever you get into a funk and you start not thinking clearly, you need to think about the past and how God brought you through. Guess what? If he's done it in the past, he will do it again. He goes on to say... <clears throat> For there are many, verse 18, He redeemed my soul and peace the battle was good. For there are many against me. God will hear and afflict them. Even he who abides from of old. Even he who abides from old. God will afflict them. Selah, think about it. There goes the hum. There goes the orchestra just playing its music so you can think about it. Think about every time in the past that God's delivered you. Think about how He will deliver you in the future. You need to think about that. Why is He going to do it? Look at this. Because they, that's His enemy, do not change. Therefore, they do not fear God. Uh, God's going to destroy them. God's going to save David because they haven't repented. They haven't uh, turned back to the covenant that God made with them, that they agreed to. They are just living their life the way they want to. So far they haven't been punished. They think they can get away with murder. But God, David knows that God in the past has delivered him from people like that and he will deliver them him again. And they're going to be punished because they haven't changed. There's no change in their life. Look at verse 20. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. Now this he right here, let me just say in verse 20, you just need to circle the word he, now refers to his enemy. Okay, This is where a pronoun is very important. This is his friend. His friend has put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. And that would be David and his crew. And he has broken the covenant. Ahithophel had taken an oath to be loyal to King David. And he was at peace with King David. And he broke that peace. He broke his Oath, his pledge of allegiance to King David. So God's not going to stand for that. 
Look at verse 21. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. Watch out for those smooth talkers. And this is a soft butter. Okay? But war was in his heart. Notice the difference between mouth and heart. He spoke smooth words. Oh, David, you're a great king. Oh, the way you draw, oh, David, David. Look at that. Smooth talker. But guess what? In his heart, what was there? War. He was thinking how he could overthrow David's regime. Look at the end of verse 21. His words were softer than oil. I don't know what else can get much softer than oil. But they were drawn swords. Look at that. Swords speaks of war. They're going to try to overthrow King David. So there's, this is speaking of hypocrisy. You're saying one thing, but guess what? You have a different intent. Your intent is to hurt somebody. Your intent is to kill somebody. Your intent is to overthrow David. So now David, in his song, which is going to be sung by the choir and the audience that's listening for generations to come, gives us some advice when we get into this situation. And here's the advice. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. And He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Now the pronoun your, cast your burden on the Lord, is a plural. So he's speaking to his audience, to all of us in a sense. And he gives us these instructions, cast your burden on the Lord. It sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come unto me all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And then he says this, and the righteous at the end of verse 22 He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. And this is an allusion that I talked about earlier to Psalm 1, where the psalmist in Psalm 1 says, We are like trees planted by the waters. Remember that? I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Remember that? I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. See, that's Psalm 1. David goes right back to Psalm 1. And he says, God will never permit the righteous to be moved. And when you go back, you should read Psalm 1 and see how all this fits in so clearly. So, no matter, here's the instructions, the advice that he gives us, is that no matter what weighs you down, no matter how heavy the weight, the burden, you can cast it upon God. Don't turn and run. Don't move. Just cast it all upon God, and having done all, stand. That's the advice. And then finally, this last verse, verse 23. But you, O God, shall bring them, that's the enemy, down to the pit of destruction. That's a guarantee. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. And uh, their days will be cut short because they're going to go to war against David and God's going to cut them down. Absalom ends up dying. Hithophel falls on his sword. Their days are cut short. That means literally 35 years or whatever. But it just means you're not going to live out your full life. God is going to take care of these people. But 
See, look at verse 23. But you, O God, now look at the end of verse 23. But I, see, now here's what David will do. I will trust in you. And you say that, that's all you have to say. That's the hub of Judaism, the old covenant. That's the hub of Christianity, the new covenant. The just shall live by faith. Trust God. David has three choices. He can fight. He can uh, confront violence with violence. He can fight. He can take flight. He can run to the wilderness and escape. Or he can stand in faith. Fight, flight, or faith. Trust God. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Jesus stands at the cross before Pilate. He can fight. Could have called 10,000 angels down. He could have run for his life before he was arrested. Flight? He could have taken flight. But instead, guess what he does? He stands there and he trusts his heavenly Father. Rome puts him on the cross. He's killed. They put him in the tomb. They got rid of him and said, sure, violence sure does work. That's the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution. Kill the Jews. That's what Hitler said. The ultimate solution. Ultimate solution. Just kill Jesus. Jesus took it in faith, and guess what? Three days later, God came through and raised Jesus from the dead. Who won? Rome or Jesus? Don't fight. Don't flee. Stand in faith. And do like David. Trust in the Lord. And he'll come through. Lord, we thank you for this new season of Psalms. And what a wonderful psalm to bring us back to the core of our beliefs. Trust. Faith. Help us, Lord, to realize that no matter how the weight, no matter how frightened we get at times, no matter who turns on us, whether it's our children, our parents, our best friends, some have had spouses turn on them. People who pledge their faith made an oath and said, I'll stand with you through thick and thin till death do us part. And they turned, the Lord, they turned. The person that we could depend on most turned. And many in this room have experienced that. They've experienced the, the downtrodden spirit of having a friend betray them, their best friend. Oh Lord, help us to learn, whether it's a casual acquaintance, whether it's a friend, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, that we can throw all of our burdens on you, and we can trust you, and you'll see us through. We won't be moved. In Christ's name. Amen.